0: That was a crowd of working people. Now, to some extent, maybe they were misguided, uh, but they were ordinary working people, which unions ignore at their peril.
1: Hello and welcome to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott is your voice. Each week, Tony and I discuss mainstream Australian values, the future of the Australian way of life, family, community and Australian culture. More importantly, we want to hear from you. That is why we have the Tell Tony Abbott segment at the end of each show where you can ask Tony your questions on whatever topic you want. Phone in to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03 9946 4307 to leave your question. You can also go to the website, australia.ipa.org.au, where you can join the Australian Heartland community and sign up to receive this podcast sent to you each week along with special analysis from the Institute of Public Affairs. Thank you for supporting the Australian way of life and now to this week's episode. Hello Tony and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you all again for another episode of Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. Uh, Before we get into it, I just want to remind everyone uh, to hit subscribe or like wherever you're listening to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. You can also send in your question to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03 9946 4307, and we'll get to your questions at the end of each episode. Tony, much to discuss as always. Um, To begin with today, I thought we could pick up on a theme that we discussed last week, which is to do with the the detachment of the elites from the mainstream in our society. Um, There is a growing disconnect between those who are the leaders of many of our economic, uh, political, cultural, and social organizations uh, from the rank and file. Uh, Tony, what do you make of this divide? Is it something that's been a recent development or has it been taking place over the last few decades?
0: It's something which has been taking place over a period of time. And I guess the most obvious example of it is, uh, is, is over climate. All of us appreciate that we've only got one planet, I think all of us are instinctive conservationists these days. We don't want to be prodigal with resources. Uh, We hate waste. We hate rubbish. Uh, We hate uh, land degradation and uh, water quality deterioration. As someone who spends a fair bit of time in the Australian bush, I hate to see uh, the bush invaded uh, by weeds I love to see the return of native animals like bush turkeys and wallabies to suburban national parks, which is happening in Sydney right now. But uh, the climate cult is absolutely entrenched in some circles, remarkably even in uh, boardrooms uh, of companies which were once uh, very much into fossil fuels. Uh, it's certainly not entrenched out there in the Australian mainstream where people do want to rest lightly on the planet, but I don't think people want to give up their petrol or diesel-driven vehicles. They want them to be efficient. Uh, They don't want particulate pollution, but, hey, uh, why shouldn't we be able to keep our cars? Uh, They don't want to give up eating meat, uh, and they want to be able to keep the lights on 24-7. And as we're finding at the moment, in Europe in particular, you can't be confident of keeping the lights on 24-7 if you are over-reliant on intermittent renewable energy. We've got to have sufficient base light in the system, whether it's coal, whether it's gas, whether it's nuclear. We've just got to have sufficient base light in the system to keep the lights on 24-7. And we're seeing in Britain right now uh, factories are running short of, of energy, uh, We're seeing shortages of fuel and all sorts of things. We just can't run a modern economy without reliable sources of baseload power, and it is absolutely imperative that government keep policies in place to ensure that we've got
1: them. You mentioned that you don't um, quite understand why Bojo, Boris Johnson, is is going along with this climate zealousy. Why? Are you able to... Has it any guesses as to that? Because to me it seems strange because of the whole red wall strategy and penetrating into Labor seats in the, in the northern part of the country, which was the basis of Brexit. It was the basis of his success uh, and becoming Prime Minister. Um, can you give us an insight and has it a guess as to why he's going in this direction? Is it just go with the flow type stuff?
0: As we've discussed before on this program, Daniel, as time goes by, uh, working people are more and more inclined to vote for the centre-right and people who one way or another are are, are paid by government, they work for NGOs or the public service or the academe uh, or maybe they're mostly on a government benefit, uh, people who are dependent on government are more and more inclined to vote for the green left. Now, the last thing you're going to do is keep your working class vote if you want to take away from those workers their cars and their jobs, going to tell them they can't have a, Mm. you know, roast beef uh, Sunday lunch, Uh, can't have a steak at the pub. Um, Not a great way to impress uh, ordinary workers in Australia or in Britain for that matter.
1: Mm. Just on that, I want to talk about the news poll earlier this week published in The Australian. We don't need to get into the Day to day machinations of, of politics because polls come and go. But what we're interested in is the longer term trends and what's happening to our country. And there's been a decline in, in support for the coalition apparently over the last fortnight. Uh, but there's one important part to that that I want to put to you and to get your assessment because it uh, relates to what you've just been saying. Uh, and this is from the poll. The most significant demographic shift away from the coalition was among low to middle income earners and those without a post high school qualification, uh, signalling a loss of support from the blue-collar workers who helped deliver the Liberal Nationals to their election victory in 2019. What does this shift tell us about what is happening in Australian culture and society at the moment? Like you,
0: Daniel, I'm reluctant to read too much into polls, even a, a series of polls, as I understand this is, It's still six to nine months till the next federal election and there's a lot that can happen between now and then. I'm a little encouraged that uh, the Prime Minister is not rushing to go off to Glasgow. The fact that he's not committing to go uh, makes me think that he is very carefully weighing exactly how far we should go down this net zero by 2050 route, Uh, the government's current policy is, in my judgment, a pretty good one. They say, look, uh, we want to get emissions down as far and as fast as we can, uh, preferably to get to net zero by 2050. But we're not going to make long-term commitments until we have a much better idea about exactly how we might get there and exactly What that might cost, I think that's an extremely reasonable position. It was essentially the position that the government had back at the 2019 election as opposed to Labor's position was that they were going to reduce emissions by 45% by 2030 and they weren't going to bother to cost it because uh, the cost of inaction allegedly was vastly more than the cost of action. Now, um, that was rightly mocked uh, by the Prime Minister and the Treasurer and by others then. And so, I think that the existing policy is pretty sensible and uh, the Prime Minister's caution in committing to going to Glasgow uh, makes me think that his inclination is to keep it.
1: I want to get into a little bit of the divide uh, that this has brought up in Australia. And there's a Really important and interesting article today in the Australian Financial Review written by Senator uh, Bridget McKenzie, who's a senator for Victoria and leader of the Nationals um, in the Senate. And I'm just going to quote you a couple of parts of her her article and get your reaction to that. Uh, Senator McKenzie says, and I quote, it's easy for the member for Kuyong or the member for Wentworth to publicly embrace a net zero target before the government has a position because there would be next to zero real impact on the way of life of their affluent constituents. And I continue, our people, by contrast, are living in the electorates uh, with the lowest per capita incomes, uh, while the industries that underpin our regional economies are emissions-intensive, not just in coal, but farming, transport, manufacturing, food processing and more. Tony, this really gets to the divide, I think, between the inner city elites and those in the the outer suburbs and the regions.
0: Exactly right. And- it's a fault line that runs right through society at the moment. I certainly recall that back at the 2019 election in my own seat of Warringah, if I was campaigning out in the street, I would usually get supportive toots from people driving utes, but uh, quite a different reaction from people <laughs> driving Teslas. <laughs> and to be honest, I was always very happy. Uh, to be the champion of the Ute driving classes, (laughs) less so the champion of the Tesla driving classes.
1: Well, and you, of course, were a champion of the Utes with the Tony's tradies, and that goes back to the Howard Battlers and Menzies Mm. Forgotten People. So this is certainly a streak, I think, within um, the centre-right of uh, politics. Um, To me, it seems... And, and Daniel,
0: look, the the last thing any of us should be into... uh is just striking poses. I mean, in the end, good government is about practical things. It's about trying to see what's not working as well as it could, and making it work better. Knowing that in this vale of tears, we are never going to get to perfection. Um, all things are going to be works in progress, and we just have to ma- have to make the most of the situations in which we find ourselves and the best that any of us can do is try to ensure that tomorrow is a little bit better than today and that our kids have a better life than we did. And the great thing about Australia is that up until now that has always been the case. Our challenge is to ensure that it continues to be the case, but but striking poses being theological about issues as opposed to practical about them is normally the enemy of real progress.
1: Tony, I just want to stick with the theme of of working middle-class representation in Australia and just to look at the role of unions in the Labor Party mm-hmm. for a moment because they've traditionally been um, uh, custodians of, of that particular view, um, but in recent times they really have become – basically representative of ageing public servants who are shuffling papers rather than, you know, low-skilled manufacturing workers. Mm -hmm. Um, What has been, in your assessment, driving that shift as unions have become, I think, a part of the elite and less a part of the workers? What have been some of the factors that have been driving that, do you think? Well,
0: again, it's a very good question, Daniel. Uh, There's no doubt that... uh In the private sector, union coverage has never been lower. It's It's about 10%, 10%, 9%. But union coverage remains uh, quite high. I was interested in some of the commentary and the reportage about the CFMEU's issues in Victoria Mm. last week. Uh, There was some observations, I think, in The Age that you didn't see too many union organisers on site anymore, um, even the CFMEU, uh, which, if you like, is the ultimate blue-collar union, it was more and more focused on politics and less and less focused on the workplace. Now, now back in the day, um, unions existed to ensure that the ordinary worker got a fair go and a byproduct of trying to ensure that the ordinary worker got a fair go was uh, representation in parliament. Uh, These days, the unions exist less and less to produce a fair go in the workplace and more and more as a kind of apparatus to feed uh, the Labor Party uh, in the parliament. And I think this is one of the reasons for what we saw last week. a detachment between ordinary CFMEU members and the CFMEU leadership. Now, look, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, although I think that people, generally speaking, have a right uh, not to be vaccinated if that's their choice. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I certainly am a supporter of freedom. And I do think that uh, people have a right to protest. And it was again, a sign of the detachment of the union leadership uh, from the people that they're supposed to represent, that as soon as there was a variance between the rank and file and the leadership in this area, instead of saying, well, let's sit down with the members and have a good talk about it, uh, we had people from John Setka down accusing all these people of being right-wing extremists, even neo-Nazis. Well, I looked at the footage and I saw a lot of people in high-vis, which they couldn't have just gone out and bought because all the damn shops are shut. (laughs) Uh, So it was obviously high-vis that they'd had with them for quite some time with uh, building company logos on. Um, That was a crowd of working people. Now, to some extent, maybe they were misguided, uh, but they were ordinary working people which unions ignore at their peril.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, you mentioned the age reportage on that, and the age also reported that about eighty to ninety percent of those at the at the protests were were CFMEU worker mm. members. Um, and you know, Bill Shorten, Sally McManus, John Secker all labelled them, you know, and disparaged them in, in the most vitriolic way. Mm. Um, which I thought was just shocking. And, and the way that um, Absolutely they-
0: appalling. And and look, while we're on the topic, Daniel, um, obviously people shouldn't break the law. But you know, uh, you've got people there at the Shrine of Remembrance with flags, with placards. Uh, To the best of my observation, they were simply there to make a point. They weren't being violent. They weren't being vandalistic. They weren't being destructive. And then you had the Victorian police lined up like stormtroopers, eventually charging them with rubber bullets and tear gas. Now, Um, I don't think you can say that all the right was on one side there and yet there was near unanimity amongst the chattering classes uh, that there was a bunch of deplorables gathered around the Shrine of Remembrance. I saw a lot of people who uh, maybe were a little misguided, maybe were a little over the top, but I saw a lot of people there who are sick and tired of restrictions, which frankly are now becoming absolutely unreasonable.
1: Look, Tony, I think that's a good place for us to move to our, our next topic of discussion, because it gets to you know these bigger issues of political representation and who is providing a voice for mainstream Australians and and those who are perhaps feeling marginalised and, and vulnerable at the moment. And I wanted to um, get some of your insights. Into some of the the figures, you know, in politics, in society, in culture, that have um, shaped your your thinking um, and your beliefs over over the many years you've had in public life. Um, one name that comes to mind for me is B. A. Santa Maria, who, of course, you've written about and, and spoken about extensively in in the past. Um, can you uh, explain and, and and discuss with us? Um, some of those role models and and people that have influenced you over the years? Sure, Daniel. Well,
0: I guess uh, like most blokes, my first role model was my dad, a wonderful man, no longer with us, but uh, there are all sorts of lessons I take from my dad, but perhaps the most abiding one is that you should always try to look for the best in people. And Mm. I haven't always succeeded in that, but it was incredibly good advice. And I have always done better uh, when I have tried my hardest uh, to find the good which exists somewhere in almost everyone. Mm. I guess uh, my next great role model was uh, the late, great Emmett Costello, who was one of the Jesuits who taught me at Roeview. Emmett was a very sophisticated, uh, cultured man. He had a well-stocked mind. He was a wonderfully inspirational teacher who specialised, if you like, in lifting young men's horizons uh, to the higher things? Uh, his his constant refrain was, "Be the very best you can be," which is almost always more than you currently are.
1: <laughs>
0: then, of course, uh, there was uh, there was B. A. Santa Maria, who I. First met, I think, at the end of my first year at university. And while B. A. Santa Maria would often lament that he and his followers had been on the losing side of almost every issue, <laughs> uh, the truth is there are some causes worth losing for. Uh, if there's nothing worth losing for, there's nothing worth fighting for. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and notwithstanding the fact that many things have happened over the last 50 or 60 years that BA Santa Maria did and would lament, the world is still a much better place uh, for Australia is still a much better place for the things that uh, that he did. Then I suppose uh, my my more recent mentor was, was, of course, John Howard. Uh, John, throughout the 80s and early 90s, was a politician who was prepared to stand up for difficult things, whether it be the crown in our constitution, whether it be um, more freedom in our workplace relations system, whether it would be for small business or the family, I mean, traditional institutions, small business and the family, uh, these were the golden threads that ran through John Howard's public life. And while Howard, like all skillful skillful politicians, knew uh, when to advance, uh, when to pause, and when occasionally to beat a tactical retreat, he always knew what he was aiming for. And over a very long public life, He succeeded in achieving just about everything that he set out to achieve and uh, I guess for a long time uh, my role was to be almost like a one-man Praetorian guard uh, for John Howard and I'm very happy that I was able to do that quite effectively um, from the early 90s right through until 2007.
1: Can I just get you to elaborate a little bit more on on Santa Maria and Mm -hmm. his influence? Because I think a lot of our listeners would know who he is in a a general sense, but he had a a significant influence through um, the DLP, the Democratic Labor Party in the 1950s, not just because of the split that that caused in Labor, but in how he helped shape the nature of debate in Australia at the time, which was focused on essentially socialism and, and communism was a key factor. Um, Can you explain a little bit about um, the influence that Santa Maria had and the DLP more generally? Yeah.
0: Well, at one level, uh, the DLP turned out to be a vehicle uh, whereby, if you like, the uh, sort of conservative Catholics, if you like, Mm. uh, could migrate politically from the Labor Party to the Liberal Party. Um, At a deeper level it was part of this longer-term shift of working people from the centre-left to the Mm. centre-right. For me, um, Santa Maria always struck a chord because he was absolutely in favour of a better deal for the little guy, uh, a better deal for the battler, which I think, every decent human being has got to be in favour of. Hmm. Uh, But he was fairly pragmatic about how that should be done and he was instinctively suspicious of thinking that the bureaucracy of organised labour and the sort of statist approach favoured by labour then and even now was the best way to go. So I, I guess... Santa was instinctively a labour man in the old days because he wanted a better deal for the labour, for the the worker, Mm. but over time he became disenchanted with institutionalised labour, which became, if you like, an apparatchik uh, class as opposed to people who really did have the best interests of the workers at heart and I can remember standing up in the parliament time and time again when I was a minister in the Howard government saying that the Howard government was the best friend that the working people of Australia have ever had and I absolutely believed that to be true and I certainly think that uh, from then right through till now it is the Liberal National Coalition which better represents the real interests of working people than the green left. Now, again, I suppose I should make a distinction between um, people who are still in the Labor Party, like Joel Fitzgibbon, who I think is very fair income in his desire to do the right thing uh, by the working people he represents, um, and and others who um, seem far more ideological in their approach.
1: All right, Tony. Well, thank you for that. And I think that's a, a great place to uh, leave our discussion for today and, and turn to our favourite segment, which is the Tell Tony Abbott segment, which is our chance to hear from you, our our listeners. And you can leave your question for Tony at the Australian Heartland Hotline on 03-9946-4307 or on the Institute of Public Affairs uh, Facebook page. Just before we get to the questions today, I just want to remind all of our listeners to hit subscribe or like uh, wherever you are listening to this podcast uh, so that you don't miss an episode. Uh, Tony, our first question today is from The Hotline, and it is from Greg from Colonel. and this is Greg's question. Greg Baxter here from Kernel. One of the great achievements of Donald Trump was fuel independency.
0: Considering Australia has one of the greatest oil deposits in the world in South Australia. We don't have, the, don't seem to have the political ability to want to mine and, and refine that oil. We have 13 days oil and we need 90 and yet we're going to rely on Singapore to produce our oil for us. Why don't we have the political will to mine and refine our own oil? Thank you, Tony. Two points, Daniel. The first is that If we do have these reserves, and I'm not sure that we do, but if we do have these reserves and they can economically be exploited, well, they should be. They absolutely should be. Second, we really do need to get 90 days of fuel onshore as quickly as possible. Jim Mullen has been on about this uh, for some time. Angus Taylor, to his credit, the relevant minister, has, as I understand it, purchased uh, oil and other reserves in the United States, but it's one thing to have them in the United States. It's another thing to actually have them here in Australia where we need them. Hmm. Uh, We just never know when there might be uh, massive disruption of the sea lanes in the South China Sea in particular and we can't count on always being able to get what we need at short notice from overseas. There are certain absolutely essential things that we have to be able to do in this country or have in sufficient quantity onshore to make do for quite a long period of time.
1: Thank you, Tony. Our next question is from Sarah. It's from our Facebook page. And Sarah's question is about the protests, which we've already discussed, but we can elaborate on a bit more. Uh, This is Sarah's question. Uh, Tony, what is your take on how the police have violently dealt with protesters in Melbourne? I never thought I'd see this happen in Australia.
0: Well, I agree with Sarah, um, and I think that, generally speaking, the policing of these health orders uh, has been incredibly overzealous and heavy-handed, particularly in Victoria, but even in New South Wales. We have had uh, uh, police uh, in, in riot gear, uh, prowling around places where people congregate. It just shouldn't be happening in a country like like ours. Um, the rules have often been over the top, as I say, and unjustified by any real science. And the police have been very heavy handed. We even had the New South Wales Police Commissioner at one stage uh, telling his uh, members to... Um, find first and ask questions later, well, that's the last thing that a police police force should be doing in a country like ours.
1: Well, I completely agree, Tony. Uh, thank you for that um, and thank you for another wonderful discussion today and thank you to all of our listeners uh, for tuning in. Uh, the number of people listening continues to grow each week, which is fantastic. Please keep sending in your questions and uh, until uh, next week, um, have a good week. Tony, thank you very much. Good on you, Daniel. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott and thank you for your support of the Australian way of life. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more or to become a member, head to ipa.org.au.